welcome to Pilgrim Devotion. I am your host, Michael Howard, the senior pastor of Seaford Baptist Church, and this podcast is for anyone inside or outside of Seaford Baptist Church that is living the pilgrim life, representing the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. And we are back with another episode. It is kind of a part two, picking up where we left off last week. We've been talking eschatology, the study of the end times, and we have been talking about the four different views on the millennial reign of Christ. And what you believe about the, the millennial reign of Christ is going to color really how you see the rest of the book of Revelation and a lot of other parts of the Bible. And it's really Revelation 21 through 6 where uh, you're going to get down to the crux of the matter. So uh, I'm going to read that in just a moment, but a little review of what we did last week. Last week we talked about premillennialism and the two different strands of premillennialism that we have seen in the historic Orthodox Church. And, and again, these are Orthodox positions. These are Christian positions. Uh, if someone holds to dispensational premillennialism or historic or classical premillennialism, gets called both of those things, uh, then then they are holding to a view uh, that is not heretical, that is not outside the boundaries of of good Orthodox Christian belief, meaning that there are good Orthodox Christians agreeing to disagree on these things. And so what is dispensational premillennialism? If you'll remember, dispensational premillennialism is the belief that Jesus will come back to earth after a seven-year tribulation and will rule during a 1,000-year millennium of peace on earth. And God will give the nation of Israel the land described in Genesis 15, 18, because those Abrahamic promises are viewed as unconditional. And then most dispensational premillennialists are pre-tribulationalists, meaning uh, they believe that the church will be raptured off of the earth before a seven-year great tribulation begins on the earth. After that great tribulation is the second coming of Christ, because they see the second coming of Christ and the rapture of the church as two separate events. Then there is the millennium, and then there is final judgment and the eternal age. On the other hand, you have historic premillennialism, and that is the belief that Christians will remain on the earth during the great tribulation. The tribulation is actually going to serve the purpose of purifying the church by rooting out false believers, and then the second coming of Christ will precede the millennium. And historic premillennialism, they hold to the church replacing the nation of Israel as God's covenant people because they see those Abrahamic promises as conditional and as Israel failing on their promise, and because of that, uh, the vineyard or the kingdom has been given to someone else. Now, there are still Jewish people in the kingdom, but those who are in the kingdom, those who belong to Christ, those who are the true Israel are those who have Abraham's faith in their heart, not necessarily Abraham's blood in their veins. And historic premillennialism treats the 1,000-year millennium as a literal future event, though some historic premillennialists, they will say like the seven years of tribulation, the 1,000 years of millennium, those, those are symbolic numbers that just point to, in the case of seven years, God's perfect allotted ordained time uh, for tribulation to occur on the earth. In the case of the 1,000 years, just, you know, really long time. And this is a belief that really is the, the belief of the early church. We have to say that it dates all the way back to the first century. And 
So they're going to see the church age, and then society is getting worse and worse, and then it's going to culminate with a great tribulation. It's going to culminate with an antichrist. Then there will be a second coming of Christ. They see the rapture and the second coming of Christ as being simultaneous events. Then you have the millennium, and then the eternal age. So that that's the, the two strands of premillennialism, but... In this episode, we are turning our attention away from premillennialism to amillennialism and postmillennialism. So, what is amillennialism? I, I, I said that uh, last time. It's a little bit of a misnomer to call it amillennialism. It, it would be better, really, to call it now millennialism, and you'll see why as I explain it. Amillennialism is the belief that Jesus is going to come again. There is no literal 1,000-year rule, though, by Jesus on the earth. Rather, the millennium symbolizes Jesus' reign and the lives of his people from the beginning of the church to his second coming, during the church age. It is his reign in the hearts and lives of his people during the church age. Jesus' triumph over the devil through his death and his resurrection in AD 30 restrained the power of Satan on the earth. So let me go to Revelation 20 and read it. Revelation 20, starting in verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. And so an amillennialist will say that those verses are referring to Jesus' death and resurrection 2,000 years ago, where through the death and resurrection, the power of Satan became, uh, became restrained. Persecution of Christians, the tribulation, will occur until Jesus comes again. And alongside the persecution will be the expansion of God's kingdom. So as things are getting worse in the world, things are getting better for the church because the kingdom is growing, the kingdom is expanding as the Lord Jesus conquers each heart that believes. When Christ returns, he will immediately defeat the powers of evil. He will resurrect the saved, the unsaved, judge them, deliver them to their eternal dwelling places. All millennialists are going to emphasize the belief that the book of Revelation is not linear, that instead it is dealing with time in cycles. So like a dispensationalist is going to look at the book of Revelation and say, we got successive time periods here. Instead of that, the amillennialist will say, we got like seven cycles using apocalyptic language to describe the entire time from Jesus' first coming until his second coming. It's like an instant replay, right? You, you, you watch football. There's a touchdown. Did the receiver get his toes in? Is it a catch? We barely know anymore what a catch is, but is it a catch? And they replay it from seven different angles so that we can get the full picture of what happened uh, in the play. And an amillennialist will say the book of Revelation is the same way. God is explaining to us what is occurring between the first and second coming of Christ from these seven different angles. So hearing me explain this, I know that if you've been with us on Wednesday nights, as I've been preaching through Revelation at midweek, you're going, hey, 
Pastor Michael's an amillennialist. <laughs> I've told you that, okay? I've said that from the, the pulpit. I've said that I, I'm an idealist in the way that I interpret Revelation. So amillennialism is my camp. That is, uh, for, for my understanding of Revelation, uh, amillennialism makes the most sense to me. And um, I think that it is, I, I, I do, I hold to it, right? Does it, will I always hold to it? I'm not sure, because as I shared in the last episode, I'm really attracted to classic premillennialism. I find myself eyeing it. I, I've joked that, like, you know, you know, eight months out of the year, I'm an amillennialist. Or maybe I should say 11 months out of the year. But there's one month out of the year where I'm like, you know what? Maybe I am a premillennialist. Truly, amillennialism should be called now millennialism because you're believing not that the millennium will never occur, but that it's going on right now as the Lord Jesus is ruling and reigning in the hearts of his people. An amillennialist is going to emphasize the historical and literary context of Revelation. They're going to say this is a piece of Jewish apocalyptic literature and we need to interpret it as such because that's how it was interpreted in the first century and the book meant something to them. So dispensational premillennialism is a viewpoint that I don't have a problem with in the sense that, like, of course you can hold to it, but where I really start to push back on is when people are like, oh, well, the locusts here are helicopters. Uh, no, like, people that were listening to this in the first century, like, those locusts meant something to them. The idea that they're helicopters, that we need to interpret Revelation through a newspaper, I reject that. Any of the four views— if, if you are, I'm a hold to this view because I'm interpreting my Bible through my newspaper and through current events, I would say, don't do that. Because we should interpret Scripture with Scripture, not with the New York Times, right? Or not with whatever the Daily Wire is saying this week. So let, let's be careful about that, I would say, no matter what camp you hold to. That's when I really start to push back a bit on the dispensational premillennialism, because I do think of all the four views, that viewpoint lends itself to that sort of speculation more, at least it has historically. According to, to the amillennial camp, the Great Tribulation represents disasters and wars and persecutions that have occurred throughout church history. And they're going to say that most of the references to quote-unquote Israel and Revelation are symbolic references to the people of God on earth. I'm going to go to Galatians 6 verse 16. And historic premillennialists and postmillennialists are going to also identify with what I'm about to say. So in Galatians 6.16, it says, And as those for, I'm sorry, And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, upon the Israel of God. Now, if you read the book of Galatians, what's it about? It is about People trying to say it's not Jesus plus nothing that equals salvation, but it's Jesus plus the altering of the flesh. you got to be circumcised before you can come to Christ. And so they're adding works into the gospel, which makes it no gospel at all. That's not good news. That's just works righteousness. So that's a false gospel. And Paul's pushing back against that false gospel throughout the entire book. And he's saying that just like Abraham, you were justified by faith alone. That when you repent of your sin and you put your faith, your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, his blood atones for your sin, and you are looked upon by the Father with a smile now as if you have never sinned. You are justified. That is your legal standing before God. And so if Paul's been arguing this throughout the entire book, it's really hard to imagine that here at the end, 
He's going to refer to the Israel of God as the physical Israel of God defined by their blood and their circumcision. It's especially hard to think that that is what he'd be saying when just before that it says, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. The Israel of God would be those who have the faith of Abraham in the heart. They have circumcised hearts. Whether they're Old Testament believers who are looking forward to the Messiah in faith or New Testament believers like us who are looking backwards to the Messiah in faith, uh, it's talking about having the faith of Abraham in the heart. That's who the true Israel of God is, and that's who the kingdom belongs to. That's what I would argue. And when a dispensational premillennialist would say, well, hey, all throughout the book of Revelation, you have to take Israel to mean the physical nation of Israel, I would simply say, I don't think we use that same interpretive rule throughout the rest of the New Testament. So the amillennial camp is, is going to say that most of the references to Israel you're seeing in the book of Revelation, that's just referring to God's people, his covenant people. In apocalyptic literature, numbers represent concepts, not literal statistics. For example, the number six symbolizes incompleteness. 666, the mark of the beast, it's counterfeit, right? That's a counterfeit number as uh, the counterfeit trinity of the dragon and the beast and the false prophet is trying to deceive the nations uh, and trying to counterfeit the Godhead. And so six would be an incomplete number. Seven represents completeness. Seven is a good number. It is uh, God's number. And so the Holy Spirit, uh, for example, let me go to Revelation 1 to make this point. You get to Revelation chapter 1, and it says, In his hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. So you see the seven there. And then, write therefore the things you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Some believe those to be literal angels. Some believe it's the messengers who took the letters to the churches. Some believe it's the pastors of those churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And so an amillennialist is going to read that and say, well, those seven churches in Asia Minor, not only do they represent the seven churches of Asia Minor, but they represent the entire church throughout the church age. Jesus is speaking to the church through these churches. And so the number seven is used uh, in order that we would be able to understand uh, that we're, we're talking about the whole church here, right? So that's just an example of seven representing uh, completeness. Let's keep going here. 10 indicates something that is extreme but limited. 12 represents the perfection of God's people. And 1,000 would symbolize a great amount or a really long time. I'm frustrated because I was looking for a specific scripture and I can't find it. Oh, I found it. Here we go. Here we go. Grace to you and peace from him. This is uh, Revelation 1 verse 4. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And the seven spirits before his throne are, that's just the Holy Spirit. That is um, the, the complete spirit of God being described with the number seven. So you can see again how seven would emphasize completeness. What scriptures seem to support amillennialism? 
Well, and amillennialists will say that, you know, the cattle on a thousand hills and um, like we don't take that literally, right? That, That God owns only a thousand hills. A thousand is just being used to describe a great amount. Another example would be one of my favorite Psalms in Psalm 90, where God teaches us to number our days. For a thousand years in your sight are as but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. So a thousand is is interpreted figuratively in the scriptures on more than one occasion. It happens again in 2 Peter 3.8. And so an amillennialist will emphasize that. When it comes to the scriptures, an amillennialist will say the first resurrection that's being talked about in Revelation uh, chapter 20, verses 4 through 6, that that first resurrection... Uh, could be referring to the spiritual resurrection or the the regeneration, the new birth of people who trust in Christ. In fact, I would say it's pretty key. That is pretty key to amillennialism. Revelation 20, verse 4, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or, or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And so the amillennialist has to argue. I think it's, it's a linchpin for the whole amillennial argument that what is being referred to there is the spiritual resurrection that takes place when a person is saved. The second coming of Christ And the resurrection of the saved and the unsaved will happen simultaneously. And the historic premillennialist, the uh, amillennialist, and the postmillennialist are all going to say that. A scripture you could point to for that argument, Daniel 12, we can go Old Testament. People who say that the concept of resurrection is not in the Old Testament just need to read Daniel 12. Daniel 12, verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn, uh, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Another uh, example would be in John 5, verses 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. All who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So an amillennialist will point to that and say, see, the second coming of Christ and the resurrection of the saved and the unsaved will occur uh, all at the same time. Saints on earth, uh, saints are on the earth during the Great Tribulation because the Great Tribulation is just happening during the church age. This is the Great Tribulation. I think for us as Americans, we go, wait, this doesn't feel like tribulation. Uh, Not yet. Just hold on. Hold on. This thing's happening in cycles. Go talk to our brothers and sisters in Asia and Africa. They'll tell you that this is, you know, this feels like tribulation to them. And that is why I think a lot of times the dispensational premillennialist viewpoint doesn't always fly when you try to take it overseas. I think that it tends to be held to in Western evangelicalism more than other parts of the world. I misspoke a moment ago. Let me go back. When I said the second coming of Christ and the resurrection of the saved and the unsaved will occur at the same time, that is an amillennial belief. 
And that is a post-millennial belief, not a historic premillennial belief. So I don't want my classic and historic premill brothers and sisters who may be listening to this to go, wait a second, what'd you just say? Um, I misspoke there uh, for a moment, wanted to correct that. Amillennialism has been around really since St. Augustine. I would say that that's when it really took off. And it's remained widespread throughout church history since then. So since, since about the 5th century, some of the famous amillennialists would include uh, John Calvin, uh, J.I. Packer. And it's funny because post-millennialists will claim uh, St. Augustine. Amillennialists will claim St. Augustine. Uh, so, so both try to lay hands on him. But, you know, John Calvin and J.I. Packer, uh, Herschel Hobbes, if you've heard of Herschel Hobbes before. Uh, my favorite amillennial commentary is Joel Beakey. I love Joel Beakey. He's an amillennialist. My second favorite amillennial commentary is Tom Schreiner's. And Schreiner used to be an amillennialist. And before that, he was a historic premillennialist. And before that, he was a dispensational premillennialist. And now he's not an amillennialist anymore. He's holding to this new thing. He's not a postmillennialist. Not yet. I mean, if he becomes post, then he's, you know, he's touched on plate. <laughs> he's gone to all four bases. Now he believes in this thing where he says that the millennium is in the eternal age. And it's like the 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 inauguration, the 1,000-year inauguration of the eternal age. I can't remember what he calls it. It's like New Age Millennialism or something. It's pretty out there, man. I haven't heard too many people holding to that. He says he's writing a book on it. I'll be eager to read it. But I love his, his amillennial uh, commentary that he did with... It's in the ESV expository commentary, the big black commentaries made by Crossway. Uh, it's in there. And I, I just love it. I think that Shriner's amazing. He just cracks me up in how much he's changed... His viewpoint, but that just shows you how just one man, who's a professor, one of the most respected professors in the entire Southern Baptist Convention, been there at Southern Seminary for a really long time. People love Tom Schreiner. That this guy has changed, right? That that he has uh, jumped from view to view to view, and that shows how we shouldn't really lose our head about this. We should try to find out what we believe, search the scriptures. Uh, let scripture interpret scripture. Try to try to figure out what is the Lord saying in his word. But don't become cage stage because five years from now you might hold you might be in a different camp. You might hold to a, a different view. Like don't seethe over these things. Don't leave churches over these things. Great stuff to talk about and study, not great stuff to be angry about. I, I think I said last week, if you study the second coming of Christ and the result is you're like angry and arrogant, start over. Okay. Same thing I always say about Calvinism and Arminianism. If you start studying the sovereignty of God and how God saves and you come out arrogant and angry, try again. Try again. You got something wrong. Let's talk a little bit about postmillennialism. Postmillennialism is the belief that the second coming of Christ will occur after the millennium. The millennial reign described in Revelation 21 through 6 represents this long period of time when through the preaching of the gospel, most of the world will submit to the Lord Jesus Christ, to King Jesus. And during this time, Satan does not have power over the earth. Evil regimes are collapsing. So they're going to point to like Revelation 19, 19, preceding the verses that precede Revelation 20. Uh, let me read there. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with the armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. 
And so they're going to point to, you know, the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies are gathered and then they're captured and they're destroyed. They're going to say that this is referring to this time in which regimes are collapsing. Satan does not have power on the earth. And really the tribulation is going to die out. The tribulation that Christians experience right now, it's going to die out because the millennial reign will begin. And the millennial reign itself will see Christianity kind of invade the world, permeate the world, and that the whole world will become Christian. Like for the most part, most of the people on the earth, nearly everybody will turn to Jesus and then Jesus will come back. And thus, that's why it's called post-millennialism, because after this millennial uh, age where most of the world becomes Christian, that's when Jesus is going to return. And so post-millennialists will say, hey, you amillennialists, you historic premillennialists, you dispensationalists who say things are getting worse in the world, we're the optimists. We're the ones who truly believe in the preaching of the gospel because we're the ones that are going to see... Uh, the gospel flourish, or at least that's what we're saying. We, we see the, that the, in the scriptures, we believe it's saying the gospel is going to flourish and that the gospel is so powerful, the whole world will pretty much become Christian and then the Lord Jesus is going to return. Postmillennialists believe this golden age is described in scriptures like Psalm 2, verse 8. So let me go there. Psalm 2, verse 8 says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And they'll say, see, that's what it's talking about there. Like, all the nations are going to come to Christ. Now, they also are going to emphasize the power of the gospel to transform societies and individual lives. Because it's not just people that are being saved, but if entire nations are turning to Christ, then societies are being transformed. During the millennium, Christ will rule on uh, will rule the earth through his spirit and through his church. He won't be physically present on the earth. The resurrection dep- depicted in Revelation 20, verse 4, they say that just represents the spiritual regeneration of people who trust in Jesus. So they would agree with millennials on that. The second coming of Christ is the final conflict between good and evil. Uh, it is the defeat of Satan. It is the physical resurrection of all people. And they say that um, all of this and and the final judgment, it just occurs together immediately after the millennium. They would point to Revelation 7 through 15 and say that's all talking about stuff that will happen after the millennium. Matthew 24, 14 is a key text when it comes to a post-millennialist. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So they're going to point to that and they're going to go, see, see, every ethnic group is going to receive the gospel. And I would say, well, amen, they will. I believe that. I believe that the gospel will reach every people group before Jesus uh, returns. It's one of the reasons that while I believe Jesus could return at any point, it's unlikely that I think he'll return tomorrow because the gospel still hasn't gotten to all these unreached people. But a post-millennialist would say, no, the gospel is not just going to reach their shores, my friend. We're not just going to talk about like a couple converts here. You're talking about entire cities and nations just being taken over for the Lord Jesus Christ. The first resurrection, uh, again, this is right in line with uh, amillennialism. They say the first resurrection could refer to 
the spiritual resurrection of people who trust in Christ, and, and they're going to point to uh, that Revelation 20, verse 4. And they're going to point to the same text that Amillennial does in terms of proof text to like support that. Um, Ephesians 2, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, amen, because of the great love with, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So post-millennialists and amillennialists will say, look, that's the first resurrection right there. The, I, I, I think I mentioned this uh, when I was talking about amillennialism a few minutes ago. The second coming of Christ, the resurrection of all people, saved, unsaved, all occurs at the same time. When has postmillennialism been popular? Well, you could really say, I mean, it, it dates back all the way to Augustine. That's what a postmillennialist would say. We, we, we go all the way back with St. Augustine. That's why I joke that postmillennialists uh, post and amillennialists, both camps will claim Augustine. But it's really during the 1800s that postmillennialism increased in popularity because you had the work of missionaries happening. It was kind of a relatively peaceful time in the Western world. Um, but then in the early 1900s, you had a world war, you had economic depression, and a lot of people started to go, yeah, I don't know about all this post-millennialism, the whole world being uh, becoming Christian stuff. And so it started to be abandoned by some. But, I mean, some great men of God have been post-millennialists. Jonathan Edwards, Spurgeon, hello, B.B. Uh, Warfield, Charles Hodge, Lorraine Botner, who I love, one of my favorite theologians, R.C. Sproul, another guy that I absolutely love. So there's been... Pl plenty of prominent postmillennialists that are known and loved. Now, not all postmillennialists are Christian nationalists, but I want to stop and just say that this postmillennialism stuff has started to gain some steam here in the last year or so, really over the last few years, I'd say since 2020, because of the resurgence of what I would call Christian nationalism, um, that there should be a church over the state dictating to the state, this is what you will do. And a Christian nationalist is going to be a post-millennialist, but not all post-millennialists will be Christian nationalists. I think you could be a post-millennialist and not necessarily believe that there needs to be a church that is ruling over the state. But that is what a lot of post-millennial Christian nationalists are running around saying. I don't meet too many of them in the flesh, but you certainly run into them on Twitter. And these folks are, are arguing, hey, we need, a, we need a church over the state, and once that happens, the whole nation starts to become uh, Christianized. It's a term that you will hear used by Christian nationalists. And then once all the nations of the earth are Christianized, well, then Jesus will return. Because as the nations of the earth are Christianized, the millennial reign of Christ is established. I'm currently reading, in preparation for our series on government, Martin Lloyd-Jones's um, exposition of Romans 13. It's a whole book. I mean, his exposition of this one chapter of the Bible is over 300 pages. But in it, he says this. He says, uh, In the last hundred years or so, that has been used as an argument to show that Christianity continues to work in society until eventually the whole becomes Christian. So he's talking about this idea of postmillennialism. He's saying, 
And, and, and Martin Lloyd-Jones, he, he doesn't mince words. He says, it is surely quite wrong to talk of Christ's lordship and his kingdom as coming gradually. He points out that the Lord Jesus talking in Luke 17, the kingdom of God cometh not with observation, neither shall they say lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. And so to me, as an amillennialist, I'm like, amen, it sounds very amillennial. And he said unto the disciples, the days will come when ye shall desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and ye shall not see it. And they shall say to you, see here or see there, go not after them nor follow them. For as the lightning that lighteneth out of the one part uh, under heaven shineth unto the other part under heaven, so shall also the Son of Man be in his day. And so what Lloyd-Jones says is that the Lord's picture of the end time is that it's going to be that there's it's going to be immediately before his reappearing that things are going to be bad things aren't going to be good then things are going to be bad and that even in the church there are going to people there are going to be people um or that even in the church the Lord Jesus will be able to ask you know is there faith on the earth when the son of man cometh shall he find faith on the earth so things are going to be really rough as we lead up to the second coming even in the church, you're going to have um, dead churches, right? We see that in Revelation 3. And so Lloyd-Jones says, far from teaching that Christianity gradually permeated society and the life of the unregenerate world, our Lord taught the exact opposite. And of course, when you read the book of Revelation, you get exactly the same impression of terrible conditions, great suffering, and the world giving itself to evil. This is why I reject postmillennialism. I think like I can listen to like Jeff Durbin, who's a pastor that I really like his sermons and I listen to him pretty regularly. I can listen to Durbin preach and he will argue that things are going to get better in the world. And his exegetical arguments at times seem convincing. But at the end of the day, I just don't think that's the trajectory of that, that scripture tells us the world will have. And I don't think it's what we're seeing. I don't think it's what we're seeing. And Lloyd-Jones points out, like in England, post-millennialism was popular during the time of Spurgeon, during the 1800s, because after the wars of Napoleon, things are relatively peaceful. But then when wars start breaking out all over the place in the 1900s, you know, if, if Spurgeon lives 100 years later, is he a post-millennialist? I don't know. I don't know. If he's living during the Second World War, he might be like, yeah, I don't know about all this. After seeing Adolf Hitler, he might go, I don't know about all this. When I look around in the world today, it doesn't seem like it's getting better. It seems like it's getting worse. And so, and I think that's what scripture tells us will happen. So I would agree with, as an amillennialist, I agree with the, the, the premillennialist and say, yeah, things are going to get worse in the world. But I do think that they'll get better for the church because the church will be purified and the church will be sanctified through the tribulation. And um, in the end, uh, as things are getting better in the church, things are getting worse in the world. Uh, because the world is under judgment and the church is not. The world is destined for wrath and the church is not. So I, I do have a real problem with, uh, with that, with the, the whole like Christian optimism thing. It's not, not that I'm not an optimist. I, be, I believe that Jesus saves. I just don't think we see in the scriptures that societies are going to be Christianized in building up to the second coming. I think we see actually quite the opposite. So the post-millennial timeline... You have the church age, you have tribulation, which is going to die out as the millennium grows, and then after the millennium, you have the second coming of Christ, final judgment, simultaneous events, and then you have the eternal age. 
Let me compare all four views here as we wrap up. And we look at some questions and, and give answers for each view. Will Jesus return physically? All four viewpoints, all four camps say yes. That's just, that's just, that's just historic Orthodox Christianity. You're stepping outside of the bounds of, boundaries of scriptures, basic gospel doctrines if you believe otherwise. When will Jesus return? After a seven-year tribulation, says the dispensational premillennialist. Uh, before the millennium. The historic premillennialist says, amen, after seven-year tribulation, before the millennium. And amillennialist, amillennialist says, any time. Uh, detailed time frame is not important. Postmill is going to say, after the millennium. Do the rapture and the second coming of Christ occur at the same time? Historic premill, amill, postmill. Yes, yes, yes. Dispensational? No. They are events separated either by seven years, pre-tribulational rapture, or three and a half years, mid-tribulational rapture. Will there be a great tribulation? Yes, says the dispensational premillennialist. Yes, says the historic premillennialist. The amillennialist is saying yes, but it's occurring right now, not in the future. The postmillennialists will say the tribulation is the conflict between good and evil since Jesus' death and resurrection, and that conflict will wane as Christianity takes over the whole earth. Well, Christians suffer during tribulation. The dispensationalist says Christians are raptured before or in the middle of the tribulation, and it's a literal seven years, right? Historic pre-mill will say, yes, Christians will go through the tribulation and endure suffering, and the church will be persecuted, and this is all for the cause of Christ and so that the church will be purified. And amillennialists will say, of course, Christians will suffer and endure persecution until Jesus returns because this is the tribulation. It's happening all around us. And most amillennialists believe that the persecution will ramp up in the end. I believe that. I do believe in a final antichrist. And I believe that Romans 9 through 11 indicates there's going to be a revival among physical Israel, that we will see a bunch of physical Israel repent and believe on the Lord Jesus toward the end. Certainly something that we should all be praying for, regardless of whatever camp we are in. Postmillennialists, when it comes to this question of whether or not Christians suffer during the tribulation, they'll say, yes, we're called to share the gospel. Tribulation will occur where the gospel is opposed, but there will be less of that as the kingdom grows. Will there be a literal 1,000-year millennium? Dispensationalists say, yes, after the seven-year tribulation, Christ will reign for 1,000 years. The historic pre-mill camp will say, yes, after the tribulation, Christ will reign uh, for 1,000 years. The amillennialists will say, no, the millennium is just referring to the reign of Christ's hearts in his believers now. This is just a, a symbol, a way to talk about this. Postmill will say, no, the millennium refers to a period of peace when the gospel reaches all people. Who's saved? All four camps say Christian only. Again, that's just basic gospel doctrine. Is the modern state of Israel relevant to the prophecies uh, in Revelation? Historic pre-mill, amill, post-mill. No, no, no. Those are conditional promises. Dispensationalists, yes, those are unconditional promises made to Abraham. And then again, when is the view held? Dispensational premillennialism kicked up in the 1820s, became really popular by 1860, has only increased in popularity with the rise of the Left Behind books. Historic premillennialism is the earliest view of the end times, going back all the way to the first century. Amil, popularized in the fifth century by St. Augustine, continues to happen today or continues to be accepted and believed today, I should say. And then uh, post-millennialists, they may have been popular as early as 8300, but they're going to point to Augustine as well and say that, uh, hey man, he was he was our guy. Uh, and 
it really gained a lot of popularity during the 1800s in the West. So, yeah, that's it. That's all four views of the end times, dispensational, historic pre-mill, on-mill, post-mill. I hope this has been informative. Um, I hope that it will help you as we go into October if you are a member of Seaford Baptist. If you would like, again, to just check out Midweek, you can go to uh, our Spotify page. You can go to wherever you get our podcasts, wherever you're engaging with the Seaford Baptist Podcast Network, and you can um, you can go and listen to all of the Revelation series. But we'll be picking it. Uh, we'll be picking it up and, and and running all the way through the end of February. So um, we got some work left to do, including Revelation twenty. And I hope this will help with that. Before we go, Christian, how is your soul? How are you doing? It's God's grace at work in your life. How do you want His grace to be at work in your life? These are pastoral care questions, honestly. And so if you listen to them and you say, wow, my answers reveal that I need pastoral care, please reach back out to us at connect.seafordbaptist.com so we can pour out that love so that we can provide that pastoral care. Until next time, keep living that pilgrim life.